I think you should build a career in data science. Welcome to Build a Career in Data Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Nolas. And I'm your co-host, Emily Robinson. This podcast is a data download into all non-technical knowledge and skills you need to succeed in a data science career. In season one, each episode is about a chapter from our book, also called Build a Career in Data Science. You can buy the book at bestbook.cool and get 40% off with the code BUILDBOOK40%. But if you don't have it yet, you won't get any less enjoyment out of the podcast. But if you don't have it, you definitely should buy it. Yeah, come on. Um, <laughs> if you've listened to 10 episodes of this podcast, it means you must be getting something out of it. So, And you must have listened to us ask 10 times like a, a bothersome toddler. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we want, yeah. Um, so this week we are talking about chapter 10 of our book, which is, and we're now, we're starting to really get into the thick of how do you be a data scientist as opposed to how do you become a data scientist? And chapter 10 is all about analyses and the act of making an analysis um, as a data scientist. Yeah, and I think an important thing here is this is a, generally a core part of almost any data scientist job. So Jacqueline has a excellent talk called You're Not Paid to Model, where she goes through, even if you're, um, you know, you're, you are making a model at the end of the day, like all the steps you have before that of working with stakeholders, of gathering the data, of cleaning it, all of those things are basically a crucial part in any data science process, even if what you end up making is, for example, a predictive model rather than uh, a report. Yeah, I think this is something that tends to be overlooked a little bit before people become data scientists, because it's very easy to read all these news articles about this neural network's even bigger, and this method does bot, but like, the like the building blocks of a data science career for most people are taking data, putting it into a, a document that explains something and giving that document to a person who's not a data scientist. And we call that an analysis, right? Like that's that's the real stuff. Yeah. And it could be it could be a document. It also could be a dashboard. And you might say, well, like a dashboard, if you're just reporting on the sales numbers for this week, like that's not analysis. And it's kind of true, but there are so many decisions in leading up to that uh, in the sense of like, okay, do we exclude like returned uh, items? All right, do we exclude things that have this like certain offer code? Do we break it down so people can look at discounted versus not discounted? Uh, you know, if, if it's a subscription model, yearly versus monthly, like all of these things where you're deciding what, how do you want to present the data to stakeholders? You are making lots of analysis decision. And it's, it reminds me of, uh, Randy Au, who is one of the people we interviewed for the book. He wrote a, a blog post on, I think it was called cleaning data is analysis, which the point being is people can look at like data cleaning as this, oh, it's like this, this grunt work. But his point is you make a lot of decisions in just like what data do you want to, do you want to keep? How do you gather it? Uh, what do you filter out? Um, how do you deal with missing data, so on and so forth, that that is part of the analysis process. Yeah, and I think you pointed, you you mentioned something that I think is kind of like an interesting point, right? Because there's kind of this idea of like, there's one type of data scientist who builds dashboards that just, you know, like more like an analyst, maybe, that makes dashboard for business. And there's another part who uses data to answer questions. But like, there's a huge interplay here, where like, you will do an analysis, and you'll be like, look, here's my analysis, it shows this offer code did blah, blah, blah. And someone will say, great, Make a dashboard that shows me the new versions of that number every week. So that's one direction. And the other direction is, suppose such a dashboard exists. One week, suddenly the numbers are much lower. They, and a stakeholder will be like, why are those numbers lower? Do an analysis to find out. And then you will do an analysis. So like this work is all super interconnected into this giant like ephemeral world of like just using data to help you make new ideas rather than using data to like power recommendation engine or something. Yeah, but that's actually, I want to talk about that a little bit because I think people, so we, in our first episode, in our first chapter, we talked about like kind of three uh, types of data scientists, as you mentioned, like a kind of dashboards report, more analysis type, a decision scientist, like answering questions, and then a machine learning engineer. So like building models to go in production. And I think people are like, yeah, I get how like a decision scientist would use analyses, obviously an analyst would, but You've been a basically machine learning engineer. So how do uh, doing analysis fit into that? Because that could be something people look at that and they're like, oh, why would, you know, I'm just putting stuff at models into production. I'm not doing analyses and reports and all of that. I think for me, what I think of like the difference between a mediocre uh, machine learning engineer and a very good machine learning engineer is how many analyses you do. 
Which is to say, you could be a machine learning engineer and have a stakeholder come to you and be like, hey, take this data and use it to build a churn model that reruns every time someone logs into the website. And a machine learning engineer could take that model, put it into a, you know, take that data, put it into a model, put that into production, done. That is, I would call mediocre. A good machine learning engineer would do an analysis first and be like, hey, look, 97% of the people in this data set would never churn anyway. So this model doesn't even make sense. Or like, hey, if I look at some of these variables, like these, these, um, some of these uh, features that's coming in in the data, I can actually tell that there's a deeper story here that tells us like, hey, you know, the churn model really is just predicting whether or not you're from North America, right? All that stuff you have to do an analysis for, it's not just training a model and put it into production. And so to really like excel at the work of machine learning engineer, you have to do the same stuff you would if you were making an analysis to show to a stakeholder. It's just instead of this, here the stakeholder is you, the engineer, and the, I guess maybe the person asking for the machine learning model. But but there's like, it's just a different set of stakeholders, but the act of the analysis is the same. Yeah, and I'd also assume, you know, uh, our listeners might be familiar with the idea of like machine learning model drift. So like you put something into production that at the time has an accuracy of this or whatever. And then a couple months later, you know, maybe that accuracy has gotten worse. And so you need to be monitoring it. And that's a type of analysis of making sure that your model is still performing uh, when it was before. And if it's not like going in and diving in and figuring out, oh, is it losing performance for certain groups? Um, or is it my, maybe because of this reason? Yes, that's right. And I think that sometimes a lot of, and we'll talk more about like the skills that help you make a really good analysis. Those skills are really important. It's easy to brush them off your machine learning engineer because it's like, I don't have to worry about how well I present the data, right? Like all I have to worry about is my model's accuracy. And it's like, no, figuring out why your model's doing whatever because of the drift, you will then need to explain it to stakeholders. And so bam, that skill of taking data and using it to help non-technical people understand stuff is still relevant. Yeah. Which is I, say, I, yeah, I don't know of a job with data that doesn't require you to talk to non-data people, really. Yeah, I, I think you, when you and Heather gave the talk about um, machine learning at T-Mobile, like, didn't you build a shiny dashboard to like help convince stakeholders to get a bunch of funding for this team? Yes, right. Yes, there is the hey, I'm going to use a analysis just to show you how valuable this is, which happened at T-Mobile, and there's also the analysis of hey. Once your models, yeah, just as you were talking about before, once your models in production, every day, someone's going to come and be like, hey, this weird edge case showed up. Why did that, why did this one customer have this output from the model? And an analysis will answer that, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So we, I, th I think, you know, we've talked now about like why analyses are an important aspect of pretty much any data scientist work. Uh, but that being said, you know, I think l let's talk about like, the reality on the ground about doing analysis. Like, is it always like, ah, oh, you know, I answer like this question exactly. I make this beautiful report. Everyone's convinced. And, and I just go home every day feeling fulfilled and on cloud nine. Yeah, no. Right. <laughs> so um, I actually have like kind of a speed, like I've, I've thought about this a lot because I think most analyses are like, hey, if we create a new loyalty program, will our customers spend more? And you can do an analysis that be like, look, this this percent of customers tend to, you know, we think will likely be in the loyalty program. You could like you could kind of make some prediction. You can't like definitively say, hey, using data, I can predict the future like an oracle. Right. Like, you just don't know. I was gonna, yeah, you're not a fortune teller. Yeah. yeah, we're not magic. And I think a lot of times, if you like dig deep into enough, almost any analysis question has some aspect of this. Whether it's like, hey, you know, if you're like, hey, I like to segment my customers. Is it like? Will we know that actually sending marketing to customers in different groups will do better than just getting everyone a single set? Like, there's so much you don't know until you actually experiment, which is, like, beyond usually doing an analysis, that it's hard to really have a true, the analysis gave us a conclusive, yes, we should launch this new product. Yes, we should um, cancel the North America branch. Like, it's you don't get that. You usually just get, like, clues to things that might help you. And... You know, I wanted to ask you, Jacqueline, so so as we said, right, like all data scientists pretty much do analysis, but it is, they don't necessarily do them to the to the same extent, right? It's like for machine learning engineer, that's not all their work for maybe more analyst type it is. And you actually, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but you've moved away from like the more analysis, like people even say like type A data scientists, like the type B build. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to to make that shift? Yeah, so I had a life crisis about this a little bit. That's just a dramatic way of saying it wasn't that dramatic. But like, so like, let me take the like previous thing I said, where like a lot of an analysis is like, hey, we want you to predict something that we can't truly know. I had this, so like, let's just suppose a company 
was like, hey, we want to do an analysis for you to tell us if launching this new product line would be a good idea or not. And you can say things of like, look, 20% of the customers we surveyed in the data said they would be interested in this product. And like 50% of people in the, in the data have purchased a product that seems similar to us from our own brand. But you can't say that thus, if we launch the, the, the product, it will do well. Like, you don't know. Like, there's so many things there. Marketing, right? Like, maybe you launched it right like right in a bad week when suddenly big news is happening. Right? Like, there's so many things you just don't know. And then I'm like, so here's my life crisis. I'm like, well, at that point, the point of an analysis is to just get an executive or some stakeholder to be better informed. But how do we actually know that they, like, how could we ever know that they're better informed, right? If we, if our analysis has launched the product, and they do, we will never know if the product actually should have been launched. Like, you can't know that. And you also can't know that even if the product should have been launched, you don't know that your analysis suggested things for really true reasons, or it just so happened that, like, well, you know, our, our analysis said 50% of people bought a similar product. But the product we thought is similar isn't actually similar. But it just so happens that the product we're going to launch is similar to um, a product Sony is about to launch or something. You know, like, like, I don't There's like so much there. You can never really know that you're helping or hurting. You just have to hope for the best. And after 10 years of working in analysis, I'm like, I would like to do something I can like slightly more real show that, hey, this had a real definitive result. You know? Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, I do think for... You know, when you're when you're an earlier data scientist at a company, usually a lot of the work you're going to be doing is like data engineer analysis. And that I think is a little easier. Like we literally did not know our sales numbers or like no one had ever broken it down this way. And this really changed and this like super surprised people at the executives. And so we changed our strategy. And sometimes you can sort of point back and like, no, I know because I brought this to the meeting because I unsurfaced this data they never seen, you know, they and, and they changed direction. But that also is usually initiated by you, right? If you're just always getting stuff that people like to directly answer questions folks have, usually they have those questions because they already have like certain ideas around things or intuitions or like decisions they're probably going to make and are looking for data to support it. So sometimes the most impactful thing is something that people are don't even have on their radar as like a, a potential issue or alternative to like a gold mine of strategy. Yeah, so this, that's two things I did in my life crisis about. Like I would not have a problem taking a career in SNL analysis for two reasons. One, just as you said, sometimes just showing the data in the first place, even if you can't say something conclusive, like this product will launch or not, just showing, hey, look, 50% of people bought a similar product that we already sell. That's still huge. That's still Helping someone see that data for the first time is still like a real thing data science does. And then to your point, second thing is even if they were already going to make the decision, if they're like 95% sure they're going to launch the product, just having the data being like, look, I have data that confirms that you already believed. Giving people confidence is still a valuable thing a data scientist can do. It's not the same necessarily as like, oh, well, we're going to use data to fundamentally alter our business. But like, it's important, right? Like you don't want to be at a company where no one believes that they're doing makes sense. Like you want confidence and you know to be be sure what you're doing is not totally you know bonkers yeah. so yeah i don't know that's kind of why i got out of yeah. it though but i i think like yeah like i so i'm sort of still still like half in it um and i think one of the tricky parts is you don't the only way sometimes you can know whether like an allison will uh, analysis will change minds or matter is by doing it so for example you could be like okay you're at a company that sells products and they're like um you know, all right, we need to, we want to know, uh, like, you're like, oh, I think it'd be interesting to look at what the best sellers are. And if you find that basically what, what you see is it confirms to what the, uh, the, the executive thought, maybe it's not that impactful. Maybe you find, oh, actually like, wow, most of our best sellers are in this category. No one realized this. So we should probably start making like more of this category of product. Cause it looks like from what I'm looking around, like people don't realize that they're so popular, but yeah, it's hard because you don't know is the answer I'm going to get out just basically confirming and everyone's going to be like, yep, that's exactly what I thought. Or are you going to get something that they're like, whoa, we had no idea about that. Yeah. And I've really been at companies that have kind of gone in either direction too much. Either we never do analyses. We just believe in, you know, our, our um, you know, we believe in our instincts enough that we like just never consider doing analyses. We just go. And that's not great. And I've also been at companies that have done so many analyses, like you couldn't possibly launch a product unless you've had 100 analyses from 100 different teams. And it's like, that's not good. That can harm you yes, too. Yes, yeah, where you're just but paralyzed. Like, yeah. 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 And it's, yeah, like a data, I don't know what to call it. Yeah, uh, like data, yeah. I, you um, you have a blog post on this, Jack. It wasn't about like, there was like a Coke, uh, like Diet Coke or something. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, so I'll briefly describe it. It's like, there's this like big press release, like when I wrote the blog post about how Coke used data from all their vending machines where you like, you know, you get to, to re- you get to choose your own like flavor combinations. They they released Cherry Sprite because so many people want the Cherry Sprite from that machine that they made its own bottle line. And it's in my article, I'm like, yeah, you point that out. But like, 7-Up has had seven, seven, Cherry 7-Up seven for like 30 years. And, like, you could have just looked over there, and it seems like that's doing well enough on shelves. The idea that, like, you can't launch that product until you've seen it from your vending machines is a sign that, like, you shouldn't only rely on vending, you know, the vending machine data to do it. Also, just, like, looking around and making good business intuition makes sense, too. And, like, I've had, I've been at companies where they're like, we will not launch this product unless you can use data to prove that it's going to be a success. And just what we were saying at the beginning of this segment, it's like, you can't predict the future with, like, you can try and predict the future, but you never really know. And like, you can't definitely say if this product isn't launched yet, it will do well with data. And so that's just not a good, that's not a good scene for a company to be stuck by that. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like, you, even if you know, like, oh, in the ideal world, we'd have this data and this would be like super informative. Sometimes you can't get that, right? Like maybe you can run some surveys, but then there's non-response. So there's certain methods to deal with like trying to like reweight things if you, you know, certain demographics don't respond. But at the end of the day, you you really can't know what those non-responsive people are and if that's systematically biased. So yeah, I mean, sometimes there is, you know, that's why I don't like when people are like, oh, data you know, basically like data, like you're saying, like data is the only thing that matters. Who cares about business intuition, domain expertise, like talking to customers? No, no, no. Unless you can like quantify everything, uh, you know, it's just useless. And I think that that is so wrong. And, and a lot of people have said, right, like data is not ground truth, right? There will always be kind of uh, biases or missing data or other issues that, again, you can have strategies to try to combat. But you also, one of those strategies should be, um, like other other data points, right? That are people's opinions, maybe, and again, domain expertise. These other these other things. Yeah, and I think to like maybe kind of bring it back a little. Analyses are like the bread and butter of what data any any data scientist kind of a job does. Um, and as we're saying, there's a lot of ways that can be used, misused, um, can be overpromised, and that's why it's really important to get good at this. Because, like, the better you can do at making analysis, the less likely you are to get into a situation where someone looks at your analysis and then uses it to to do something that is not true. Right? Like, uses it to be like, oh, this analysis means blah, blah, blah. Therefore, we're, like, we're going to launch the product. And it's like, oh, I didn't mean it to mean that. You know, like, like really, the better you can get an analysis, the more likely it will have the intended, the effect that people intended. And it won't accidentally do something, um, you know, that's wrong in any sort of a way. Yeah. And so that's why in the next part of our show, we're going to be going into a lot of practical tips about how do you make a good analysis. But for that, shall we take a break? Yes, please. Ugh, categorical data can't fit into your numerical methods. Can't seem to be able to turn a string feature into a number that your model requires? Try one-hot encoding. One-hot encoding will create a new set of features for you, each with a zero or one value that can be used by almost any model. Even better, no data is lost in the process. It represents exactly what you want. Don't worry about the size of the features in memory. What matters is that your models will work in the first place. And use the offer code TOOHOT, uh, that's T-O-O, HOT, to encode an extra variable in your data frame um, this week. Uh, so try it. Try one hot encoding today. You know, I love it because like in the social sciences, we just call those dummy variables. But of course, like computer science has to be like, nah, dummy variables. That sounds too dumb. Okay, let's make well, something more that cooler. like a, that's a word that's going out of style. For dummy like, variables? Just dummy. I think oh, it's, it's I, I, you know what? That's probably true. Uh, yeah. So I guess that's so another reason to go for one, one hot encoding. Um, yes. Well, thank you as always, Jacqueline, for that. That's <laughs> yeah. finding, finding our sponsors. Uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's your, uh, yeah, and all the sponsor uh, money is really adding. Yeah, up. I know. Right. <laughs> Way more than we yeah. got the book. Um, that's right. all right. So we promised some, like, let's get down to the, the practical tips here. Uh, cause I think we, we talked about why our analysis is important. I think we sort of touched on why there also can be, can be tricky, but let's go a little more into it. So I want to start by like, uh, so something Renee Teet, another person we interviewed for our book, who has, uh, she's on Twitter at Becoming Data Sci, quite popular. Um, I think she sort of like first coined this idea of the process of um, like sort of basically a data analysis going from, okay, starting with a business question, 
getting to the data question behind it, getting a data answer and translating that back to the business uh, answer. And I think like that's a really important thing to talk about because you know, sometimes analyses like you they they start with a very clear data questions like how many customers did we have bought something last month? Um, but I think it's important to start thinking about okay, why do they want to know this number? Like your 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 role as a data scientist is not just to sort of be like a I don't know, basically like a vending machine that you kind of like put these data questions in and you just like spit back out the data answers and like that's your only role. Like one that sounds like a pretty terrible job, but the other reason it's not is like if you want to make an impact, you really need to start understanding, okay, what are the, what's the context around why they want these numbers? What are they going to do with it? Because that will also help you inform, all right, is this going to, is this number going to be helpful some way? Or are they just wondering because it's a Tuesday and they're bored? Yeah. And I would say maybe I was, I will say a stronger statement than what you said. So like this idea of like, you don't want to start with a data question. You want to understand what the business question is, turn it into a data question, solve that, turn it back to a business question. Business if answer. someone came to me, your business answer. Yes, that's right. Even better. Um, if someone came to me and they were like, here's a data question. I just want to know, just tell me how many customers bought this product in the last month. That is a huge red flag for me because if they ask a question like that, inevitably, if I got them the numbers, they'd be like, oh, I didn't want to include customers mm-hmm. who are new or like, oh, like, but what about the blah, blah. And like, you will do this back and forth or you'll do this. You'll make these number for them three or four times. And then you'll finally be like, what are you using this? Tell me what you, you want to do with it. And I will figure out what the number is the right one. And they're like, oh, I want to try and figure out if we should keep continue using the product, selling the product next month. And I'm like, oh, well, I can create like I will do that instead. And then that becomes an interesting analysis of like, hey, should we keep having this product around this month? Sales seem low um, versus just, hey, I'm going to give you a number out of context and hope you interpret it correctly correctly. Yes. And also ideally, it's a little bit of a separate thing, but for stuff like that, like that is, it's, you know, sometimes they just need like, we need to report to the board or whatever, how many like sales we had last month. And so ideally those sort of stuff becomes automated through something like a dashboard, right? So any kind of like really straightforward, I just need to know this number because this person needs to know it, or we need to like know our budget for next year or whatever. Um, Like those should be, you know, at you know, unless you're like one of the first data people on the company at like a very early stage startup, like those sorts of like simple questions should already be automated through things like dashboards. So if people are coming to you with that, that's a little bit of a red flag, either that, you know, oh, we need to automate some more stuff. Uh, or if, uh, or the other part is like, okay, no, I think there's like, uh, a, a place they could have found it. So why why is this dashboard that I built around sales numbers like not enough for them? Yeah, well, and and to that point, if they came to you and they'd be like, I want to know how many, you know, how many glass cups we sold last month. Because you, you were drinking water when I started that sentence. That's the product this company sells, apparently. Um, how many glass cups we sold last month? And you're like, we sold 9,000. Is 9,000 good? Yeah. Is 9,000 bad? Like, there's no context there. And soon they will ask you, like, is 9,000 a good number? And you'd be like, I don't know, like, compared to what? And then soon it turns into a business question if you think about that for enough time, you know? Yeah. And I just want to say, like, in talking about this, like, you should, like, one thing that is as you grow in your data career is I think when you're junior, you kind of start out being, like, a little more passive, maybe not having a lot of input into this. But once you get more senior, you should start thinking of stuff. It's like, oh, when they ask about that context, okay, start a dialogue with them, like understand, like between talking with them and looking at the data, all right, are there seasonal patterns? So like 9,000 is less than we sold the previous month. That might not look so good, but that previous month is the holiday time when we always sell tons of cups. So actually it's very expected that there would be this dip. So maybe I want to compare it to last year instead of right now, or you could say, oh, um, but last year, like, uh, Randy also, I think, was worried about this, like the tyranny of Easter, um, because Easter changes months. So, mm. uh, you know, if you're somewhere that, I don't know, you sell like Easter-related or holiday-related things, it's like, oh, my God, why is March this year so much worse than March last year? Well, it's because Easter fell, like, in March last year. And that's the type of thing you start, you know, learning, and you can give this this input on and, like, detect the patterns and help explain to people, again, like, the kind of context behind the numbers. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to your, like, in the first segment, you're like, Jacqueline, why don't you, you don't make analyses so much anymore? And, like, part of it is, like, by becoming a principal, like, part of it's just, like, eventually my job is just doing the translating a business question into a data question and then handing the data question over to a more junior person. Um, so, which is to say, if you're a more junior person listening to it, one of the ways you can help grow your career is to get more involved in the 
understanding the business context quickly rather than just putting it off for other people to do. Yes. Yeah. I think that's um, like, that's like me as a senior data scientist, like I started doing more with my team is exactly that. It's like scoping out the work rather than be like, okay, we've already narrowed down exactly the type of question you asked, but, but starting with this really messy and broad question and figuring out, all right, how can we like chip away at this to get something that actually we can answer with, with data. Um, and yeah, so I think that's like a, um, a, re- a really good thing as you start, as you think about, okay, how can I grow in my career? Uh, that's something that I think one will just is, is more helpful to the business, but then is also something I think people start looking for in more senior data scientists. Um, is that you do dig a little deeper and you're, you know, and that's again, like we talked in episode four about building a portfolio. And I think we advise, you know, don't necessarily just go to Kaggle and like download a data set and answer the question that they have to like build this predictive model, because, you know, we've said this before, it's, 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 you almost never get that right. You're talking like you're not paid to model. There's so many steps before that. And that's why I think it's great if you can start practicing that maybe even before you're a data scientist by like figuring out your own questions, gathering your own data, dealing with like, oh, this data set doesn't have exactly what I need or it's a little messy or like, oh, it doesn't go back as far as I thought. So I actually can't build a forecasting model. What can I do instead? You know, so on and so forth. Is that much more mimics the real process of working in data science? Yes. And this kind of leads me to my first practical tip. I would like to discuss, which is analyses more than anything else are stories. And the reason why is when you think like if you back to this example, you, you have a stakeholders be like, hey, I, I, I want to know how many if we should cancel the glass cup product next month. That is a human being who's coming to you because they're like, look, I have to make a bet. Should I keep this product around or not? And I want some comfort and understanding of the situation. What you are delivering as a data scientist isn't numbers. It is information that will help them feel comfortable with whatever decision they try and make. They des- they ultimately decide to make because they're the ones making the decision, not you. And if you view analyses as, I'm going to create a bunch of numbers and charts, and then that is my output, that is not helpful. What is helpful is I'm going to hold this person's hand and walk, you know, help gently guide them through the concept of making this decision, which can mean like, you know, yes, you will show some charts and you will put data in there that will help make your points, but you have to have points, right? You have to be like, okay, we know we're thinking about canceling these cups, First, like, let's talk about what's been happening. We've seen that the cups have been going down in sales over time. You know, like, that's the interest of the story. And then the middle of the story is like, it's like, well, is anything, do we see any hope of this product change, like, trend changing? And it's like, blah, blah, blah. And then the end of the story, it's like, now, after having looked at all those data, kind of assessed it from different angles, our recommendation is that it, it seems like the cups will continue to sell even less. So now is as good a time as any to cancel them. But if you didn't, we think this is likely what will happen, right? Like, like there's like a beginning, a middle, and a logical conclusion that the person will be like, okay, great, I will take this and this will help me do my job better or make me more confident in the decision I was already going to make. Yeah, and I think it's so key there, you had your conclusion is you offered an opinion, right? Like, I think we should do X for these reasons. Yeah. Um, but if, you know, if we, for what other reasons, decide not to, that this is what I think will happen. I, I think as when I was starting out, I was in some cases like where it was very clear cut, I was comfortable like making a decision like, okay, this AB test ran and it's like not significant, don't launch it, whatever. But other cases that were a little more like squishier, as we said, like it's, you know, you can't predict the future. I was very uncomfortable like injecting my opinion. I kind of wanted to just be like, oh, here's the data. Okay, go, go make your decisions, business people. Like I, you know, I just, I'm just the data delivery person. Uh, and yeah, that so is t- also something, yeah, you got to work on. Right. <laughs> yeah. And just two points on that. One is, it is totally fine to be like, we do this analysis. And honestly, we can't tell if we should cancel the product. We just, we don't know what's going to happen. So maybe like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen is a fine answer. Like in conclusion, inconclusive is an okay answer. Just give an answer. We recommend yes, no, we recommend inconclusive instead of here's data, silence. And then the other thing I would say is, at some point, you got to take a little, you got to start taking some gambles yourself, right? Like, I have a, a math undergrad, a master's, or whatever, like, in math, you don't ever say something's proven until you can show with certainty. But like, business is never like that, right? Like, and I see a lot of junior data scientists would be like, well, the data doesn't definitively 100% say that the cups are going to continue down for sure. Like, we, we, we can't 100% know that. So we will not say anything. And it's like, come on, you know, like, come on, you got to just you know, you got, you got to like, and this is like back to the things you need to do as a data scientist. At some point, you got to have a little business intuition, right? You got to like start, you don't have to put, you don't necessarily have to take big swings and be like, our company should invest in oil. Like, I don't know, but you should be willing to, you know, step up to the plate a little. 
Yeah. And I think, well, right. So it's like a little bit taking a risk. And I think this is, we'll probably visit this in our 13th episode on failing as a data scientist. Cause yeah, I think the reason you might yeah. not want to do is like, oh, if I don't give a conclusion, like if what they decide is wrong, like, oh, it, you know, it wasn't me. I just like delivered some data uh, rather than sticking your neck out a little bit and being like, oh yeah, I did recommend this thing. And it turns out that actually like it, you know, again, even though in hindsight, you can never quite tell us something wrong. Um, you know, you take a little bit more of a risk there. You put yourself out there a little bit more by saying like, okay, this is what I believe. But I like that you pointed out one of the things you can put out there is like, honestly, we looked at it, it's like, it's really not, not clear. Um, but even that is taking more of a stand than just sort of delivering like a bunch of graphs and tables. Yeah. And you know, if you have, you do five analyses in a row and every time you end it with inconclusive, then like, Maybe the thing you recommend is, hey, we need to change around what question you're asking us to do as data science because you keep asking for stuff we can't do, right? And, like, that's kind of a more senior principle kind of discussion. But, like, that's that's the kind of thing you should be thinking about is, like, as a person making analyses, it's your job to provide informative data. If people aren't give, aren't asking you to do things you can do, how can you change the dynamic? You know, like, what can you do? Uh, so now for another practice clip, I want to talk about uh, something you recommend in the book, uh, which or we recommend in the book, which is making an analysis plan. And the reason for that is you talked earlier about how it's like, okay, they ask you like, how many customers do we have? Give them the answer. They say, well, like, what about if you bring it down this way? You give them the answer. What if we do the discount? Give them the answer. Okay, can we go back another year? You give them the answer. But da, da, da. Right? You just have this forever back and forth. And this is, you know, it's tiring. It's like a little bit annoying. You kind of feel like you're done. You feel like you move on to the next thing. It's like, oh, nope, you got another, another loop. Um, and so why don't you talk a little bit about like what an analysis plan is and why it helps with this and also some other parts of making a good analysis. Yeah, an analysis plan is like a, um, it's just a document that's like, before you start the analysis, here's those sorts of questions you want to answer. And here is how we plan to answer them, right? Do we think that the sales are going to continue to go down for the glass cups? Well, we're going to use a time series model to try and show what the prediction is going to be, right? Like, like, come up with a list of this. This helps you with a couple of things. One, it lowers the chance of the stakeholders going round and around because they kind of know the all the work you agreed to in the first place. And like you can add and subtract stuff from an analysis plan, but like it's a little more awkward to be like and then add more and more and more. Um, but I find it's really helpful just for myself. Like I have been burned by this and I've watched lots of data scientists get burned by like, I don't have any plan. I'm just going to get the data and start noodling around and see what I find. And then three weeks later, you've tried, you made all sorts of graphs, none of which work towards the point you're trying to make in a story. But like, oh, you know, like, so, so it keeps you focused a little bit. And, and I would say to that, um, to that back and forth you were talking about, and same with the analysis plan, like this helps you kind of, again, like, m like take a swing, make a little bit of a bet, right? In the sense that like if a, if a stakeholder, there's an infinite way they could ask for you to change the data. If you have an analysis plan, you're doing this, like after like two or three of those requests, you can be like, look, we can go around all day. We've wrote our, our list of what we think we'll, we will show. We have done that. We haven't shown anything conclusive. We can try more stuff, but we still don't think that's going to be conclusive. And this is likely to just consume a ton of time and not get us any more results. It seems like that is immensely powerful. Um, and it an analysis plan can help that. Yeah. And I think you, you sort of imply this, but I also want to state explicitly, right? Like the analysis plan should be something that you collaborate with the business stakeholders on, right? So they should see it. They should approve of it. This process, I think, not just helps you from infinite question, but also really make sure, okay, am I answering the right business question, which hopefully if they look at this plan there and you're like, okay, this is the kind of thing we'd get out at the end, which is what you thought they want. They might actually say, oh, wait, no, I don't, I don't want that kind of table. I don't need this. I actually need this thing. Um, and I love how you also point out it's very helpful uh, to keep yourself from going down rabbit holes as well, right? It's not just useful to get on the same page as the stakeholders, come up with agreement. It's also good for you so you don't end up spending kind of way more time than if you had thought at the beginning, how much time is this project worth? Yeah, yes. And this, the, 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 the uh, analysis plan is itself a deliverable, right? But you show it to a stakeholder, they're like, yep, this looks good. You have already, that is so much better for the stakeholder than silence for three weeks. And here's what we think, then we're done. We've done what we think we needed to yeah. like, like it lets them be comfortable because they know what you're working on. And that's just, that's nice. Yeah. So we kind of talked about all right, setting up your analysis, hopefully for success, but why don't we talk a little bit about, okay, so we, we said with the deliverable, don't just like deliver like graphs and, and numbers, but like, why don't we talk a little bit more about like how to make a good analysis report for a stakeholder? And I think the big thing there is making it digestible to people who aren't data scientists. Um, so, and not just 
And so we're going to talk in episode 12 about different stakeholders. This may look different whether you're presenting to like an engineering team or a very technical PM versus a high level executive, right? It could be different both based on what they know, but also for a high level executive, like usually they have so much on their plate, you really need to like make something pithy. They do not want to read a 20 page report versus a PM where this is their main product area. They really they may want to know basically everything because like that's very helpful for them. This is their one focus. Uh, so it's not, there are some general principles I think we can talk about, but also tailoring to your audience is really key. Yeah. And in particular, also the delivery mechanism, right? If you have, if your audience is like a couple like, you know, sales or like product managers from another part of the company, and you know, you're going to have an hour meeting with them where you're going to, you know, they're going to ask you about the cups and you're going to walk (laughs) them through all of this. Then you can really be thinking about like, okay, what am I going to put into a PowerPoint presentation? How am I going to make sure that they understand it? Like, like when they walk in, what are they going to know already? And like, what am I going to need to inform? Like, are they going to know that the last six months of sales have been bad mm-hmm. for cups? Or is that something we're going to have to talk? Like, you know, there's like, it's really hard to to know in advance what the right start, like level of granularity to start is. But it's really valuable. And a lot of times people just skip it and dive right into like, and so here's the charts I made. And it's like, you know, like that's, that's really, you know, it's like, it's like starting in, in the middle of a movie. You're not going to know what's going on. So. Yeah. And I think this isn't always maybe true, but I do think a good general principle is at least considering having an executive summary, um, like at the top of a document or the PowerPoint, which is basically just like, okay, here's a problem. Here's very briefly what we did. Here's the conclusion. Uh, because otherwise I actually like one, it's, you know, again, it saves time. Maybe someone only has time to read that paragraph, but also, um, I remember talking with somebody pointed out to me, like when I hadn't done that, uh, that otherwise sometimes like the stakeholder spends a whole time like wanting to know what the answer is. And so they're not really paying attention to the rest of your presentation because they're like, I just want to know that. Versus if you start with the answer, then they get interested in like, okay, like h- how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, and it's a lot easier to walk through the charts, right? If, yes. like, if the answer is we don't think you should sell cups anymore, you can be like, and here's another chart that mm-hmm. shows it from a different angle, right? Like it's, yeah. There's like, if you're like really good at stuff, you can try and like, not reveal the surprise to the end to create drama intrigue, but like that is like a yeah. I don't, a, know. don't don't do that unless you're really confident in yourself. Yeah. yeah, I mean maybe you could do that if you're giving like a talk at a conference or something, right? And you have yeah. some like Buzzfeed like you know kind of title that's like you know you won't believe like what we found out about this. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yes, generally I think like don't write. You, you you're not you're not like you know it's not a mystery novel that you're writing. It's okay yeah. to give the answer at the beginning. But that said. I, I do think adding like adding a little bit of charm into your presentation is actually incredibly valuable, right? Like if you can have like, like, you know, like the like difference between giving an hour long talk that is like just a technical, like, yes. here's the problem, here's how we solved it. And like, uh, you know, and like, you know, just put like a joke or two in and when you're talking, like it really like getting people to like engage, lighten up, that stuff really matters. And it's not, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's so different than like, Make a neural network, but it is actually surprisingly valuable. Yeah, and I do it. So I will take it back. I think one fun thing you could do is like, let's say, for example, you're worried about like the hindsight bias. Like you think people wouldn't guess the answer, but you know, once they see it, they'd all be like, yep, yep, that's what I thought. Like maybe do something fun. Like you have one side for you, like, why don't you guess like, you know, which of these pages performed better um, or something like that. And you pull and that's a little way to get engagement, you know, but it, it doesn't delay the answer too much. But you know, it's a way to get engagement. And then you're like, oh, so 90% of you thought this, which is kind of what we thought too. But actually, it turns out it was this other one. Yes, yes, exactly. And if your job is to get an executive, like hold their hand and help them make this decision and get them on the same page, like if they are not able to focus on your presentation, because it's too dull, that is part of it. Like that is itself, you know, a bit of a problem. Yeah, I think we've talked, have we, I'm trying to remember if we talked on this podcast before, but I do think like, this is where like public speaking and writing, I do like communication skills, right? It's kind of a yeah. cliche, but they are really important to a job. Um, and I think that's something you can gain uh, maybe in college. Like I think I got through extracurriculars. You could, if you're like an adult, you're like, well, I'm not in college anymore. I didn't do any of that. Maybe try things like Toastmasters or, but the other thing is also just practice, honestly. Yeah. And I would say the thing that, you know, like there's like, okay, make jokes during your talk, haha, whatever. But then there's like the very real practical thing of like, if you put a chart on on the slide and you're in front of a group of people, how do you know when to be like, and you can see that this chart's showing, you know, like, look, again, another upward trend versus would you say, A, look, another upward trend or look, another upward trend, which like the previous chart 
again, shows that the product isn't going to be launched, right? Like, like when you, would you add that context to just, like, remind people? And when you're like, oh, they clearly are nodding their heads and they got it. I'm going to try mm-hmm. and move as quickly as possible to the next stuff. And that, I think, is very much practice. Um, yeah, being willing um, to, like, is, improvise a bit and see how yeah, it's going. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and dial up and down the yeah. amount of explaining and stopping. And, like, that, yeah, it's, like, it's a skill you have to practice. Yeah. And there's lots of, in terms of, like, again, like, practical tips, like, for example, what makes a... A good chart or a good table like that. That is something where there are like a ton of resources out there, right? There's lots of books on data, effective data visualizations or blog posts or other things. And I do think that's worth looking at because even if two charts that like, you know, you sort of are, are, are plotting the same data can be received very differently depending on like how clear you made it. Did you include a good subtitle, right? Did you remove extraneous details? Did you use some coloring to help? So I do think it's worth you know, you might say like, oh, that's not like they're showing the same data, like people should just get it uh, or whatever. But no, I think it's it's worth learning about like, okay, how do we make effective data visualizations? So you get more of those nods in your presentations or when people are reading your report. Yeah. And I think that's like, I think this is a, like, that is a very concrete example that I've seen happen a lot with data scientists, which is like, suppose we have like 20 categories and we want to show how this one particular category did differently. It's like, do I put a chart on with 20 bars and then be like, hey, notice that one bar? Or do I like make a new chart that has two bars, the one we care about and an average of all the other bars, right? And like, that's a small difference, but like those sorts of difference compiled over the course of an analysis will like change it between, oh, people really got it, understood it, and signed off on it, and a presentation where they're like, well, I guess the data scientists are telling me don't do the cups, but I didn't get why, so, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, and this is, again, so, like, so if you're listening to this and you're, like, you know, just starting as a data scientist or about to start, and you're like, oh, my God, there are, like, so many things, right? This is why part of the I advocate for joining a, a somewhat established team because this is something that the more senior members should help you with, right? Like before you go present to a stakeholder, you should be able to ask them like, hey, could someone look over this presentation? Or what do you think about this chart? Or they might see that you didn't make an analysis plan and are kind of headed in a, in a uh, maybe into a rabbit hole and they, they steer you back or they sit in the stakeholder meetings with you and give you feedback afterward, right? It's not that you should know all of these things. And there is some learning you can do just by you realizing like, oh, this wasn't effective, this didn't go well, but you should be getting feedback from like people who have more experience in this and that can really help you grow. Yeah, and just, one thing also to take into account is like, yeah, we're giving lots of tips here, but you don't have to be good at this right away. Right. There are lots of data scientists who've gotten very far in their career without being experts in both creating analyses in like the most human understandable way and presenting it. Like it's okay. It just takes time. Don't beat yourself up. Just consider this a good area to focus on as your career grows. Yeah. And I mean, like I'm still, you know, learning a lot and I'm sure you are too, right? Like this is just like you can always basically get better. And the point here is not to be perfect and never make mistakes. Again, we'll talk about that in episode 13. But like Jacqueline said, just like, yeah. hey, like, this is something, this can be a thing that is overlooked because you're like, I just got to like learn all the technical stuff. And like, that's what's really going to matter and do the code interviews. And actually, uh, both for honestly, I think getting jobs, um, but also for doing well in them, uh, communication is really important. I want to talk about one more thing before we go to our inevitable break, which is um, talking about errors in analyses. <gasps> I know, terrible. Um and this will happen, you know, you're giving your talk and your stakeholders there and you're like, you talk about your slides and they're like, blah, blah, blah. And everyone's charmed up until you get to a slide where your stakeholders like, actually, you're showing that, you know, 5 million people have bought cups in the last year. But I know that's not possible. We've only sold 10,000 the last year. There must be something wrong with your data. I can't trust any of this analysis. And you're like, <gasps> you know, and it's terrifying. And this happens. This, this has happened to me a lot. It's, it's. Okay. And I think this really happens for two reasons. One is you legitimately had like a like a, a bug in your code, like, oops, you divided when you should have multiplied somewhere that like causes some errors that like, hey, if you had been a little bit more careful with coding, maybe you would have caught. But then sometimes it's also like, oh, you were using the data from this database. Mm-hmm. But as we all know, that data stopped being updated three months ago. And like, no one told you, but we knew it and we didn't tell you. And now you have to redo everything, right? Like there's the, you are missing some context because you didn't have the context. Your numbers are wrong. That one in particular, that type of error, there's no, I can't, I've never found a way to solve that error except getting your data to the stakeholder, your results to the stakeholder as quickly as possible to have them iterate. And so I highly recommend as part of, when you think about making analyses, don't, 
spend weeks getting them perfect and then show it to the stakeholders, get the stakeholders in as early as possible. Because if like in week one, they told you, oh, you're showing 5 million cups sold and that's not right. You could adjust that a lot easier with a lot less pain than if they did it in week six when you're about to show it to the CEO. Yeah, but okay, so that's that's a case, right, where they kind of, the stakeholders know enough to catch it. But what about if you do analysis, stakeholders like, oh my God, I never, I never knew that. Like now I make a decision and like whatever, a month, two months later, I don't know, for whatever reason you revisit it and you're like, oh crap, like maybe it's because like another person, maybe it's someone else who sees it, who didn't see it before, has a contact or you realize that like bug or whatever. But the stakeholders still don't know. Like, what, what what do you do then? Have you had this? Have you been to, have you had this happen to you before? Is this like a hypothetical? It's happened on a team I've been on. Um, I wasn't like working on that project. Um, so I kind of know what happened, but like I didn't have to directly deal with it. So when I've been in the situation where it's like, wow, we already launched the project. Like, we've used it, whatever, like, like mm-hmm. it's, it's gotten very far. And then we found the error. Like, the only thing you can do is just be open and honest with everyone. Be like, listen, stakeholder, it turns out we had a problem. We didn't account for the blah, blah, blah. Or like, like we, we had either, it could be like our math was wrong or, hey, we didn't account for the fact that this database hadn't been updated. It was incorrect. Here are the correct numbers or here are our plans to get the correct numbers. Here are, we think the repercussions of the error are like, but like, just be open and honest. And then honestly, and then it's kind of your manager's job to figure out how to handle that. Right. Yeah. 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 And I I think that's great. I think, like you said, open and honest. Sometimes there are steps that you can take. You're like, oh, maybe this happened. You know, uh, so there's like this blameless postmortem concept, right? You sort of understand, okay, is there a system here? Like, oh, you know what? Maybe the turns out the data engineers definitely knew that. Like, maybe let's build that in as a step in our process. Like, double check with the data engineers who are still stakeholders. Or, you know, it's like a coding bug. Maybe we try for like really, you know, key analyses. We'll have like another per- do code review. But but sometimes you look in there like, oh, like, yeah, like you said, there just really is no... Like there, there really kind of wasn't a way to know. There isn't a step you can put in place that will, I don't say there's never going to be a, a, a step that will like keep errors from ever happening in this process. But that is one thing you could think about is like, okay, looking back on this, are there places where I think maybe having a checklist here, or adding this an additional thing might, might prevent this type of thing in the future. Yes, I agree. Having the like, hey, let's figure out if this is something we could avoid. Yeah. Fantastic. But also accept that you won't always be able to avoid. Yes. Yes. And I think, like you said, like people, you know, mistakes happen. And I think, like you said, it's just like owning up to it. Also, I think if it's something more like, oh, to fix it, it's going to take months, maybe bring it up before you actually know what the the right answer is. But if it's something that like, okay, we can pretty quickly correct this and get the right answer. I do like what you had said, trying to present it with like, okay, this is a mistake happened for this reason. Um, here's the here's the corrected report is is good. Yeah. And I would actually say do the due diligence to be sure it is actually a bug. Like, I've, I'm kind of a person who I'll see something be like, oh my god, everything, like, look, there's something wrong here. Everything's broken. Tell my manager. We're all panicking. An hour later, I'll be like, actually, it's yep. fine because that's handled in the next module. Um, and then I'll be like, uh, yeah, false alarm. Like, so, like, really be confident it is indeed an error before you start raising the flags. But do raise the flags quickly. And again, it's just like, it'll it'll be okay. Like, I think this can be kind of terrifying when it's like, oh my god, it's you know, like I'm a bad data sign. We'll get fired. The stakeholders will never, like, trust me again. And it's like, no, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be okay. My first company I worked at out of school, I had some numbers that later turned out to be incorrect just because of pure, the formulas are wrong in my Excel worksheet. And I had to send an email to the CEO in this super official report and tell him, sorry, the super official report was wrong. And at that point, I'm like, oh, well, I can't do worse than that, which is probably not true. I'm trying to do far worse than that. But like, yeah, it's here. I, I yeah. still made it. So I, I also will say like the other thing I like to think about with this is let's say like, okay, you're, you're a, uh, let's take an engineering thing. You're like a junior engineer and you're working at AWS and you can code something that takes down like all of AWS. Like that is not a you problem. That is a system problem. Like there should be like checks and balances there. You should not have the permissions to do this. There should be fail safes, et cetera, et cetera. So like Etsy, you know, where I used to work had like what's called a three-arm sweater award, which is for someone who like did sort of the most like catastrophic thing to the site. But the idea was it it was like, okay, this person, like the blame is postmortem, the system failed them. And let's figure out how we fix it. Because if you're a junior employee, like let's say doing analysis that determines the direction of the company, it turns out there's wrong, like that should not be on you. It should either be like, okay, yeah, again, there should be, this should be something if it's so important, like maybe it's automated or the finance team, like there's a team dedicated to it, or you have peer review going on or a more senior person does or whatever. Like, you know, re- remember, even if other people, if, if it is a sign of a bad culture 
both honesty, if that can happen, if, if that happens and then they blame you versus being like, oh, how, how is the system set up? So like something like this could happen. Yes, I agree. I think that is true a hundred percent. And I'm going to also say part of being a part of a thing I've had to learn as a data scientist growing up from that moment where I messed up with CEO mm-hmm. is like, it's really important to have part of your coding be a step of like, hey, am I sure this, this formula right here is yeah. right? If I, what if I just tried real quick to like, like, I assume this is true, but like, I need to double check. Like, let me double check that each row is, sh- you know, unique in this table. Like, right. doing that kind of work is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. I, yeah. I should be like, and nothing is ever your fault at all, right? Uh, yes, no, this this does not exonerate you from trying to have some careful coding practice. And that's why I think it's also like, again, exploratory analysis is so important before you start building a model because you might be like, oh, crap, this thing is missing. These entries are duplicated, like this whatever, right? Which if you just go straight to building the model, you may never find out. And that, you know, again, could build a model that is not going to be useful or is totally wrong. So yes, you you should, it's another good practice as like a data person to just don't, don't make assumptions, like wild things can be in your data, right? And so like just doing some, some summaries uh, about like, okay, what's the min, what's the max here? Do these things make sense? Checking with the data engine, checking with the people who uh, gathered your data again. Another Randy is getting a lot of shout outs in this podcast, but he has a blog post on like, I think it's called like know your data, really know it. And it's sort of all about this because I think to go back to like analysis, to do a good analysis, you do really have to get to know your data. Right. And not just the data that's input, but like halfway through your analysis code, when you've made some summary yes. tables, not, is it still true that every country shows up that was there in the beginning? You know, like just taking, mm-hmm. putting some effort into making sure. Um, with that, why don't we, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. All right. So this week I came up with a game uh, and what the game is. So it's, you know, around doing analysis. So you work at a puppy making factory and don't worry, it's very humane. The puppies just kind of like appear. <laughs> I was like, what? No, no, no. Like, like, it's not like, it's not like, you know, uh, uh, what do they call it? Like, breed- yeah, no, no. The puppies just, you, whatever. The, a way came up to like, just like make puppies. Um, we have magic, whatever. We 3D print them or something. And puppies are proven to be the cure and vaccine 100% effective for the coronavirus. So we need to get the puppies out to everyone. <laughs> okay, um, but, uh, you know, so, so you are, so I'm, I'm the CEO. I have like, ah, oh, I developed this great like puppy making technology. Um, but I'm coming to you and it's like, all right, Jacqueline, how can we get the puppies out to everyone who needs them, which is everyone in the world? And don't worry. And also just, again, like ethical things, like if puppies are abused, they like disappear or something, right? Like no puppies are harmed in the, in the making or distributing of these puppies. Um, I am fascinated at your choice of puppy <laughs> as, the, as the delivery mechanism for the vaccine. I'm not questioning it. I think pu- I'm happy to puppies, play this game. Puppies I cure just... everything. They don't necessarily have to be COVID-focused. What, and we just, it's proven that someone getting this this puppy will just, you know, make them happy forever or whatever. So to make it clear, the the analysis is, hey, we have a stockpile of puppies. Is the stockpile no, we don't growing have a stock, each day? We don't have a stockpile yet. Like oh. we have a magic puppy making okay. machine. Maybe maybe like thousands machine. of them or, or whatever. Right. But, okay. but the puppies do not exist yet. Is it in like a location? Is it, like it, a, is, like... it is like right now, let's say in New York, because that's where I founded the company. But like okay, maybe excellent. they need to get the puppy making machines need to go other places. I think you're gonna make a lot of money with this venture. I gotta say, very no, good. they go free. They, they're all free to good homes, which is every home. All right, fine. Maybe okay. I make money. Make <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I like it. It's well, like the free. polio vaccine, um, right? They didn't patent it. Yeah, so everyone can get it. It's incredible. Um, okay, so analysis of how to distribute the puppies. So. According to this great book I read, Build a Career in Data Science, the first thing we need is an analysis plan. So I think the kind of question is like, what is the, I guess, what is the real, I'm going to do the, the the thing we were just mm-hmm. talking about, where I'm going to talk to you and be like, what's the real business problem? Is it that I don't know which people to give it to? Is it that it's hard to distribute them across the country? Like, like what are the constraints? Because you could just start, like, I could walk out, on the, walk out on the street, be like, here are some puppies, everyone, and let the puppies run away and find homes, like, what, what what are you trying to optimize yeah. here? So that's, a, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because yeah, there are some uh, intricacies here. So like the, you know, the big overall goal is like, we need to get, there are like billions of people in the world. Everyone needs a puppy, but everyone does not need the same puppy. So some people want like a French bulldog ah. and some people need to match the gold retriever, but I don't know like who needs what, uh, like which puppy or even how many, like 
are goldens going to be like 70% of people want them or 5% of people want them? So like, how many goldens should I make? And, and like you said, where to make them to get them to the people the fastest, right? Because every day someone goes without a puppy is a day that they are risking their lives and happiness. That's right. This is, okay, I got to say, this is like a totally made up nonsense scenario. <laughs> and I'm fascinated by it because it hits on two things. One, how do you make a good analysis? And two, optimization. Which is right? your thing. It's an optimization yep. problem. It's my thing, right? And so, like, <laughs> I love this. Um, like, I'm lighting up here. Okay. So, and also, I think, here's what I'd actually recommend. And so now, this is kind of what I'm talking about as a data scientist. You also just kind of be a business person. I would say to you, business owner, like, it sounds like really the first thing you need to do is actually some market research, right? Like, you need to survey people. You need to do interviews. You need to find out, like, right to your point, you're like, I have no idea what kind of dogs people want. Then, like, you need to figure, start finding, like, getting some information on that. And then a data scientist can go and be like, oh, I'm going to look at these different locations and understand the survey data from each of these to try and come up with, like, a profile for these dog needs. But without an understanding of the customer or whatever you call a person when the company's free, like, user of dogs, I don't think you can do much data science yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess that's fair. Um, so, okay, so we fast forward like a couple weeks. Yeah. And all right, I did a market research and like, uh, or the market researchers gave me this report uh, that says, okay, we surveyed some people and like, here's a breakdown of the type of dogs that they need. Here's, okay, so now let's do an analysis of how we're going to get these dogs out. And here's where I would write the analysis plan. And this analysis to plan to me feels like it would really co- central, like, we have really one core thing, which is how do we get the dogs to the right people? So to me, the analysis plan is probably to answer that. What I would probably do is create a, a simulation of like, hey, let's take this customer data and actually simulate of like, hey, let's suppose that like this research is exactly right. And every customer had some probability of wanting this dog versus this dog from the research. Knowing our capacity, what would an integer programming problem, like what would a simulation be able to solve? And so the analysis plan would be like come up with this simulation and run the integer programming optimization on it to come up with some sort of optimization optimization of dog output to people. And then I would analyze the, the, the remaining part of the analysis plan would be to analyze that, which would be like, well, how did the model, why did the model choose this? Like, well, then the, you know, like how do I take the output of the model and say, yes, this is something that is generalizable and we should rely on it. And here's what that means. Or no, the simulation didn't actually work. It didn't converge. The results are nonsense. We need to go back to the drawing board. Well, so I want to, so, you know, I've taken off my CEO hat. Uh, so Jacqueline, you said, like, let's just assume, like, the survey results were perfect. How how might you, like, ch- you know, poke at that assumption a little bit as a data scientist if you're like, here's a market research report? So that's a good question. And I have a person who has had to do this before. It's very hard to do that. I've always just kind of taken it, assumed well, they were true. I think you could you do know? some things. Like, for example, what if you found out the report was only run in the U.S.? Like, we just surveyed customers in the U.S. Yeah. No. Okay. I've literally that exact problem. <laughs> right? I think that's a very common problem. You'd be like, hey, this is just U.S. data and we need it for a world. What are you going to do? You could either A, assume that it's also true for the world. B, rerun analyses at different parts of the in the world, which you, you personally aren't, as a data scientist, aren't the person you get to do. Or like C, try and do some sort of like weird, like, well, in Europe, we know they tend to like these dogs more, so I'm going to try and fudge it myself, which feels way worse than just <laughs> assuming US is true. I don't, I don't know. I think maybe, but, but I think actually what you could also do is, let's say, for example, okay, we did this market research and we found this. And we're like, actually, wow, that's really correlated with like, the actual, for the, whatever, 40% of people in the U.S. who own a dog, like, you know, the the breakdown of what types of dog in, like, what people actually own right now is quite similar to this, like, what we found out is the dogs that everyone needs. So you could, for example, say, like, okay, so, like, let's make, that's still an assumption, but maybe a weaker one. We assume that that's kind of true elsewhere, and we do have data in Europe of, like, what types of dogs do the dog-owning people actually have. And yeah. so maybe, and we find, like, for example, compared to the U.S., like, people are more likely to have small dogs. Uh, so maybe we do adjust like what we predict the whole population Europe will need based on what the actual dog owners. So I think you can look for other data sources here. Yeah. And I think if we were like in the, the universe, this dog universe, I think <laughs> this conversation is a very valid one to have with some peers on the data science team. Like this is you make the analysis plan and then I show you another data scientist working at dog company and you are like, actually, there are some good ways Like you should take into account with the other people. And like... I think that's a really good dialogue to mostly have inside the data science team. 
maybe have a little bit with the stakeholders, but mostly like internal to the state, the science team be like, what is the best way we could actually solve this problem? Right. And maybe like, it doesn't have to necessarily be with the direct stakeholders for this, but let's say like the dog company has now grown a lot and you have like specialists for each continent or maybe even some country specialists. Like you could be like, okay, they're not the direct stakeholders of the project, but why don't I go talk to the person and be like, hey, like this is what we're thinking. We only have this research for the US, but like you're an expert on our India potential market or whatever. Like, what do you think about this? You know, we think about adjusting it this way. And they're like, oh, actually no, those survey, those dog ownership surveys are like total junk or whatever. And actually it's, or are so biased to the cities and actually in the countryside, it's way more like this. And I think this is why analysis plan is pretty great because I think you always are going to have this step of like talking to other stakeholders or talking to other data scientists to try and like suss it out a little bit. And like if you have one core document where you write this all down, it's easier to have those conversations. And the worst thing you do is you don't have those conversations. You just do what I did and be like, I'm going to assume the U.S. is valid for everywhere. And then you do the analysis. Someone on your team's like, that's never going to fly. Like, like I know the stakeholders are not going to be okay with that. Yeah. I also want it for our listeners, like... I'd sort of be like, well, what about this? What about that? And I, I sort of get that as like the game master. It's not like, oh, I'm so much better analysis than Jacqueline. But but let's say, okay, no. so you run run the simulation and you're like, okay, the best places to put the factories, like it does actually converge. We'll ignore the US part. We did a world survey, best place to go to this. So would you just say, like, let's say a simulation, it shows this, this. So would you just come to me and be like, we should place our factories here, here, and here? I think I would. I would say our simulation, reckon, like our simulation shows, if what we are op- optimizing for is where the factories go, I'd be like, the we ran the simulations, here are the assumptions, blah, blah, blah. Here's where it suggests the factories are, and then maybe a like, like, but here's the, like the models didn't account for the price of land or, yeah, you know, whatever. I, I, and like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, but Jacqueline, like you say we should put one in Sweden. We're not allowed to operate in Sweden. So, and here's the so, so this, I think, is a valid back and forth, where if you're like, look, we're not allowed to operate in Sweden, then that's like, great, okay, the model didn't take that into account, and and thus the solution isn't valid, so it's fine. We can either update the model or just be like, we'll move it 25 miles and you're over the border. You know, like, yeah, we can, yeah, hand wait. And that, that's fine. I think that's fundamentally different than, like, kind of the thing we did at the beginning getting where it's like well you didn't take into account that that europe has a different dog breeds it's like well you didn't take a fact that each country in europe didn't you know right like, that's but that, that being different. said yeah yeah i i didn't mean that as like oh let's take over pestering i actually think it's like this may be something you might want to ask at the beginning because you might have the assumption the factory can be placed anywhere in the world but if you ask me like hey like we're like you know it, so actually it was in an interview question once for like a, a company that produces physical goods and this was it was around like all right where should we put our new factory one of the first things i asked was like can we put it literally anywhere and they're like oh no actually like it's really just these five sites um that are possible like we narrowed it down for like all these other reasons uh so like that's a very different problem to tackle of like which of these five sites put a factory than going in and assuming anything goes and probably the reality is usually anything doesn't go it's like we can't put a factory there because there are no people like that's in the middle of nowhere and there are no workers we can get to run that factory or it's going to cost like millions of dollars more to like get people there who can work it. So I agree. And I think it would be good if you ask in advance, are there places that you have sites potentially? Like like those conversations you should have before you do your analysis. But concurrently, you will never be able to guess all of these. Sure. Right? Because sure. like, yeah. like, I, I, like I didn't know to think of that. Right. You know, like it's like, how would you know, think of some of these? And so like, that's why, again, I feel like I'm saying this over and over this episode, but it's really, really true. I'm just like, talk a lot to your stakeholders because, you know, if I did one simulation result real quick, I'd be like, hey, what do you guys think of this? They'd be like, ah, yes. that never fly. That's much better to do than, you know, right when it's about to go to the CEO. Yeah, the the powers of, of MVPs. And I think sometimes you can do it with, uh, so like one thing a team I worked on does was like, not just get the MVP quickly, but even like mock up like before you do any of the data analysis be like this is the type of graph i would produce or this is the type of table and obviously the numbers aren't right but you can ask like would this help you having a graph that like like look and they might be like oh yeah no that that type of thing doesn't so even before you do a lot of the work you maybe can like mock up what uh, a result might look like and find out whether or not like you can mock up like oh our model returns like we need like this place this place this place and even and those aren't real results and they could say oh wait no we can't have a place in whatever there are you know these restrictions so and so forth like we're, we we can only look at these 10 countries or cities with over a million people which they might not have proactively thought of before but like putting their results in front of them might might elicit those yeah so i think that'd be kind of how i'd approach this does that answer your question slash game does that i think yeah i, th- I okay. think we i think we got through so now uh yes yeah, so to conclude your brilliant analysis with some back and forth we figure out where to put the puppy factories Puppies get delivered. The world is saved. 
no puppies are harmed in the making of this puppy dump. Yes. Great. I, mean, I feel like also this episode and this game kind of made me realize just how much there's like, there's the process of doing the analysis where you make the models and blah, blah, blah. But like, there's such a very explicit meta process where like, first you talk to the stakeholders and then you ask mm-hmm. them like, well, what, like, what about these? And you get some money tax and then you make the plan. And like, like, and I think the more comfortable you get with that whole meta process, I think the easier this all becomes. And, but like you said, you, you will never, it is almost inevitable that like, oh, I overlook something or like, oh, they come back with this thing, right? It's like, don't think that like, if I can just get good enough at this, I will like, you know, always deliver the perfect analysis. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's always going to be messy. You just get very comfortable with it being wrong, mm-hmm. right? It's not yep, like you get, yep, it's not less wrong. You're just yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's our show for the week. Check us out on our next episode as we discuss putting data science into production. I am so excited for this episode. I've been waiting for this episode since we've started making this podcast. Very excited. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on one of those places you do that. Uh, You can also tweet at us or share on LinkedIn your data science opinions, feedback on the show, or questions for us with the hashtag data science career. You can buy a copy of the book at bestbook.cool and use the code BUILDBOOK40%. That's 40% simple for 40% off. Our theme song is by the extremely funny Matt Bouchelle, and thanks to our publisher Manning for helping our book exist. And may your stakeholders not ask for too many revisions. 